You're listening to episode number 74 of the Tailwind Coaching Podcast. Welcome to the Tailwind Coaching Podcast, where it's all about smart, efficient training so you can crush your cycling goals. And now, your host, Coach Rob Manning. Welcome, everybody, to episode number 74 of the Tailwind Coaching Podcast, the only podcast on the internet that makes real science real simple. The website, the Daily Grind Cycling Journal blog, Tailwind Coaching blog, the episode show notes receptacle, all that's available down at tailwind-coaching.com. And that's also where you will find my online training plan store with complete training solutions for all of your major season goals, grand fondos, races, group rides, and of course, general cycling fitness. As a compliment to those training plans, you can sign up for my training plan support option. For $30 a month, you get me to coach you through any of the downloadable training plans you've purchased. And you can also sign up for the Tailwind Coaching Newsletter at tailwind-coaching.com slash sign up. And that's where you'll get free coaching advice, workouts, fitness information, special offers, and all kinds of other good stuff delivered to your inbox. And don't forget to share that link with your friends as well and help them improve their cycling experience as well. If you've got any questions about the topic of this podcast or any questions in general, feel free to email me at coachrobdc at gmail.com or coachrobdc at tailwind-coaching.com. You can follow me on Strava, Stitcher, Facebook at the Tailwind Coaching Facebook page or on Twitter and Instagram at coachrobdc if you're trying to get a hold of me or you just want to sort of follow along with what I'm doing. I ask you if you're enjoying this podcast, if you enjoy the Tailwind Coaching Podcast in general, go ahead on over to iTunes. There's a link in the episode show notes and rate it. I love five-star ratings. Those five-star ratings really help me move up the ranks of the podcast world. And the more I move up, the more people I get to reach. The more people I get to reach, the more people I get to help. And the more people that I get to help, the more enjoyment I actually get out of doing this. The Tailwind Coaching Podcast is free information and I do it mainly because I love watching people enjoy riding their bikes. And what better way is it to enjoy your riding your bike than to ride it better, ride it faster, uh, drop your friends on the hills, things like that. So the more ratings I get, the more people get this information, the more advice I get out there, and the more people I can help. So go ahead on over to iTunes and rate it five stars. If you don't like it for some reason, shoot me an email and tell me why and how I can improve it. Always looking for ways to improve the podcast. Uh, The link for... That iTunes link is at the episode show notes, tailwind-coaching.com slash 74. That's the number 74. And that'll take you right over to the podcast show notes for this episode. Now, speaking of this episode, we are going to talk about 10, count them, 10 devastating cycling mistakes that I have made specifically so you don't have to. Uh, Now, these are things that I've learned throughout years and years of riding, racing, training, uh, coaching others. And these are common mistakes that I have made that I've seen other people make, and I don't want you to make. So we're going to get into that, but first I want to thank all of you, every single one of you who's listened to and downloaded this podcast. Um, earlier this summer, I've been on a few weeks hiatus here, actually about a month hiatus, we topped 150,000 unique downloads. So I just want to thank every single one of you who has uh, downloaded and listen to uh, the podcast, more than 157,000 downloads. Uh, That is awesome. That is really awesome. So thank you so, so much for making the Tailwind Podcast, the Tailwind Coaching Podcast, a successful endeavor. And I'm looking forward to putting 
together another 70 some odd episodes for you in the near future. But that being said, let's talk about 10 devastating mistakes that I have made so you don't have to. Okay, 10 devastating cycling mistakes that I've made. And I'm explaining these so you don't have to. I'm putting myself out here on the line. Most people think that coaches are infallible. Most people think that, well, you're, if you're the coach, you're doing it all right. You're doing everything right. You're not making mistakes. On the flip side, I would say that as a coach, I've probably made more cycling mistakes by myself than I've even seen my clients make. And that's really part of a learning process. Really, you have to experience before you can learn. And that experience is sort of what drives the necessity or the need to change, adapt, and modify so that you can not make those mistakes in the future. So having said that, why am I giving you this information? Why am I giving you all of these tools about making mistakes? Why am I explaining these to you instead of letting you make them yourself? Well, it's quite simple. Some of these mistakes are a really painful lesson. Really painful lesson. All right? Some of these mistakes could result in you getting hurt. Some of these mistakes could result in you ending up having to seek medical treatment. I don't want that to happen to any of you. I don't know most of you who are listening to this podcast. I talk to a lot of you, but I don't know most of you. I certainly have not talked to 150,000 people, even though I'm talking to you right now, okay? But I don't want to see any cyclist make a mistake that puts them in harm's way, that puts them in danger, that could potentially result in death or dismemberment for lack of a better indirect phrase. Not too long ago, we had a couple of cyclists. We actually had almost a dozen in Michigan. Four or five people were killed. Four or five people were seriously injured. Now, they weren't making mistakes. The only mistake they happened to make was being in the wrong time and the wrong place at the wrong time. And there's nothing we can do about that. There's nothing we can do to change the course of time or the hand of fate that happened to guide that intoxicated driver into the back of that group. What I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you 10 things, 10 mistakes that I've made, 10 issues that I've had, 10 things that I have pulled from my collective memory banks. And those 10 things are really things that I believe are universal. Whether you are training, whether you're racing, whether you're a Grand Fondo rider, whether you are a group rider, whether you're just a guy who's out casually riding for fitness and fun. Something, one of these 10 mistakes, one of these 10 issues can have an impact on you. And if I can prevent just one person from making these mistakes and somehow ending up in some kind of trouble, then I've done my job for the day. So that's why we're going through 10 mistakes. That's why I'm putting out there my worst 10 moments For you to pick apart and for you guys to laugh at and for myself to laugh at too, of course. But without further ado, here's our first of our 10 devastating cycling mistakes, which is 
And we get a drum roll here, but I don't have a drum roll. I don't have a drum and I don't have a sound effect for it either. So not eating enough and bonking. Now, the most vivid memory I have of this particular cycling mistake is from early 2013. Um, <clears throat> for a while, we had a Sunday team throwdown kind of ride. Uh, a Sunday ride where it was team member invite only or invite only for people who were associated with a team, for example, spouses or boyfriends, girlfriends, things like that. And uh, we had a, a fairly solid group, and we typically did have a fairly solid group of anywhere between 12 and 20 riders. Now, these team throwdowns would typically start out pretty reasonable, you know, nice, reasonable, casual pace, and anywhere between 30 and 50 miles in length. And as I recall, this particular ride was around 40 miles in length, and uh, the first 20 miles were relatively uneventful. It was a Sunday morning. I woke up late, didn't get a chance to eat properly, didn't do much, had a cup of coffee, threw on a kit and raced down to our starting point, got about 20 miles in, and about 20 miles in is where the hammer drops. You drop the hammer. That's when all the fast guys decide, you know, it's time to show what they got that week. Where's your fitness for the week? That's sort of what it was all about, all right? And I particularly like to ride near the front of those all-out throwdown type of group rides. I make sure I do my turns. I race smart, typically. I race smart. So there you go. That's a good description of how this ends up being. It ends up being an impromptu race. But I ride smart, try to do my turns on the front, make my attacks where I can, where the terrain suits me, etc., etc. Basically, it's setting yourself out there and getting some race intensity without actually paying the 30 some odd dollars through bike ridge to race for you know a sunday morning crit now because we're talking about a 40 mile distance and i didn't need anything beforehand we're talking two and a half hours maybe three hours after a slow 20 mile start well about five miles from the finish the lights went out some of you may remember if you watch pro cycling a number of years ago, 2009, 2010, somewhere around there in Perry Nice, Alberto Contador was in the leader's jersey and completely blew up in one mountain stage. And I mean like lost like five or six minutes kind of blew up, which for him was completely out of the norm for what was the best stage racer at the time. He simply didn't eat. See, your body needs carbohydrate fuel during exercise. Now, I know those of you who are regular listeners to me are going to say, well, but you've advocated a fat-based diet and you've, you've advocated fasted training and all this other stuff. And that's true. That's true. But the higher the intensity, intensity over your functional threshold requires sugar. Just plain and simple. It requires carbohydrate. During that high-intensity exercise, your carb stores are actually going to be limited, especially on those early morning rides, because your body chews through glycogen during the night. The first thing that's going to go, your blood sugar will be the first primary substitute or the first primary substrate that is used by muscles. Muscle glycogen is right along there with it. Finally, when those are depleted, your body has to release glycogen from your liver to stabilize your blood sugar and then has to transport that carbohydrate out of your bloodstream into working muscles in order to maintain 
the fuel demands of those high-intensity working muscles. During that process, you get processes like gluconeogenesis, and you get some uh, lactate scavenging, you get some uh, ATP regeneration through um, the pentose phosphate shunt, which I've all talked about in various different posts. However, those things take time and they take energy. You need carbohydrate, you need energy now. And your body can't provide it. So the lights go out. I will tell you, that was probably the one experience in my life where just every stroke of the pedal, every turn of the pedal was a chore. It was a job. Every turn of the pedal was like a fully loaded squat. And that was about five miles of that. Now, the stupidest thing that I did in that particular event was I didn't have anything to eat with me. I didn't carry anything to eat. I didn't think about it because I was running late. I didn't pack my pockets properly. I didn't have time to you know, really think about my nutrition plan for the day, for how hard the course was going to be, for how hard the route was going to be. I didn't throw my gel flask in. And that is typically the savior. My favorite thing to do if I'm not eating real food is to throw in a goo flask or a gel flask, a hammer gel flask, with a few shots of hammer gel. I particularly like hammer gel because I like the flavor of it. It's palatable and it's easy for me to consume. I don't like single-serve packets because they're messy, they're dirty. You should not throw the packets on the side of the road, even though I see people do it all the time. So don't litter with them. you got to stick them back in your pockets. Your pockets get all gooey. Anything that's in your pockets get gooey. That's why I like the flask. But I didn't have that flask on me. So the next five miles, and let me tell you, folks, it was a lumpy five miles. All right, none of the routes that we tended to ride on these Sunday team throwdowns were ever flat routes by any matter or means. But that route was lumpy, and that last five miles was hell. If I remember correctly, I may have averaged about seven or eight miles an hour for that last five miles of the route. Whereas we would typically average 18 to 20 miles an hour as a group, even with a nice slow start. So, how do you prevent the bonk? How do you prevent this cycling mistake? Very simple. If you're going to be on a ride that is stretching more than an hour or two, let's say an hour of hard training or two hours of easier training, you're not going to get by on just those fat stores. You're not going to get by on just the energy substrate your body can produce. You need to eat. I suggest carrying that gel flask with you with some hammer gel in it, or you can always carry some real food. I recommend the stuff from the Feed Zone Portables cookbook. That's a great, great resource for small bites of food that you can take with you in your pocket. And I would suggest that if you're going to do a hard ride, you need to eat after an hour. If you're going to do a relatively easy ride that's going to stretch out for a while, you're going to need to eat after two hours. But not eating enough and bonking is one of the major mistakes that I've made, and it's one of the biggest ones that sticks out in my mind. And I made it so you didn't have to. Got that? Now, moving on. Along with eating, not drinking enough. And this happened to be before a really hot human ride and this one i can actually trace back and this was another one of those moments where i it, honestly i look back on it and i'm thinking god what am i doing i mean i was really looking back on this and uh, honestly looking back on it it's a little bit frightening to look back on i'll be honest with you 
This is from about August 2013. And we uh, we had, a at that time again, had a really hard Thursday night training ride. And it was typically a more steady state ride, less uh, race intensity, but just higher functional threshold type intensities. Now, at this time, we were in the middle of a super wicked hot spell. Heavy heat, heavy humidity, almost 100% humidity. In fact, as I recall, the heat index was somewhere around 105 to 108 degrees. And I even remember thinking, man, man, this is stupid. Why am I going out for this? And I did all the right things that I should have done. I, you know, I threw on my lightest kit that I had, uh, lightest colors that I had. Um, I made a critical mistake, though. I didn't drink anything throughout the day before I went out. I drank my usual cup of coffee in the morning, uh, coffee in the afternoon, some water in between during lunch and in between there, but I didn't drink for my activities later. I also didn't do any kind of electrolyte preload, which I have started to really like doing. So what happened here was we basically got a little ways out. It was hot. We were all dying. We were all hurting. We started a longer three-mile kind of gentle-ish climb, and the pace picked up. And of course, picked up the pace at the front of the group a little bit. And after about 15 minutes of hard riding, I started to get dizzy. I started to get lightheaded. I managed to struggle my way to the top of the climb that we were on at the time, I remember telling the group, guys, I got to pull over for a minute. I have to sit down for a minute. And I sat on some random person's steps of their house. I took my helmet off and I really—I just put my head in my hands and I just kind of wanted to close my eyes and kind of go to sleep. You know, the guys around me are going, are you all right? What's going on? Are you okay? Pouring water over my head. I'm saying, I just, I just want some water. Just get me wet. Help me cool down a little bit. And I think it took like four bottles of water just dumped over my head and just, you know, sort of rinsing my face and, and my neck and whatnot before the world started to open up again. You start to get that tunnel vision and then the world starts to open up. Any of you who have ever experienced this will know exactly what I'm talking about. And it's a pretty scary thing. But it took, you know, a little bit of time for me to come to. And for the rest of the ride, I was toast. I was cooked. I was literally cooked. I'd overheated. It was the start of heat illness. And that's dangerous, folks. That's a really dangerous thing. That's similar to having a fever. The higher your fever, the less your body can actually function. And the less your body can actually function, the more danger it's in. Basically, my body was shutting down. And it forced me. It absolutely forced me to stop. Otherwise, I would have fallen over in the road and passed out. So, that's a pretty important mistake to make. And I'll be honest with you, I've never made that mistake again. That one time was frightening enough for me to not make that mistake again. But how can you prevent making that mistake? Well, a half an hour to an hour before you ride, make sure you are prehydrating or preloading your electrolytes. All right, I like, I really, really like the Scratch Mix or the Scratch Labs Rescue Mix for this. That's what I use to prehydrate or preload in really, really hot weather because it ensures that my body's going to retain some of the moisture that I'm putting into it. 
And I'm going to do a couple of other things. I'm going to make sure I drink extra water throughout the day, especially if I'm riding in the evening when it tends to be hotter. I'm going to make sure that I'm drinking extra water throughout the day and hoping to absorb that into my body so I have a little bit better preload before I start exercise, before I start my ride. I'm also going to carry an extra water bottle, typically frozen or with a lot of ice in it, and sometimes that bottle is merely to dump over my head because it feels really good. But typically, I'm going to ice out all of my bottles so that they are very cold and they're cooling me from the inside as well. Now, I did put some other tips. If you look in the podcast show notes for this episode, tailwind-coaching.com slash 74, I've got a link to some of my previous articles about ways to stay cool in the heat. And I really suggest you take a look at that because that's a really important thing to do so that you don't make the cycling mistake that I did of not drinking and not hydrating before a really, really hot, humid ride and suffering from some of that heat-related illness. All right, moving right along, we're going to talk about, we're going to go back to 2011 now, to the Tour of the Catskills, where I made a, I made a colossal F up at this one, I got to be honest with you. All right, Tour of the Catskills. Most of you know what this is if you're in the Northeast. Tour of the Catskills is one of probably the toughest stage races that's put on in the Northeast. Uh, it's uh, an anthem sports series, I believe, along with the Green Mountain Stage Race and previously Tour of the Battenkill, which unfortunately no longer exists uh, as a race, but as a Grand Fondo. And Tour of the Catskills is kind of famous because it takes in the same climb which shattered the Tour de Trump in the mid-80s. Uh, mid to late 80s, uh, the Devil's Kitchen Climb in uh, the Hudson Valley of New York in the Catskills, a sick, sick, sick climb. Depending on how you measure it, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.2 to 1.6 miles in length with an average grade anywhere between 11 and 13, 11 and 14 percent. It is absolutely brutal. And I, I did a post a while back about... Um, about my climbing in the Devil's Kitchen, because called getting fried in the Devil's Kitchen, and it was a wickedly difficult climb, to be honest with you. Um, but in 2011, I had signed up to race the single stage race or the single stage of the Tour of the Catskills race, which they offered at the time. I don't know if they even still offer it, to be honest with you. And that stage was essentially the third stage, the hilly stage, the mountaintop finish. The mountaintop finish is on the top of. The Devil's Kitchen. Now, the recommended minimum gearing for Devil's Kitchen is 39 by 28, which is huge. That's a big gear for most of you who are uh, racing, you know, kind of understand how big of a gear that is. The average person, most of the people in this in this race, I believe it was a, I think it was a citizen's race at the time, were basically riding a, a compact and a 28. And uh, it, it was, it's a difficult race, to say the least. But I digress anyway. Before that race, I did what anybody typically would who gets psyched out about a mountaintop finish like that. I changed my gearing. Now, not only did I change my cassette gearing, I went from a 1225, which is what I typically ride, to an 1128. But I also changed the wheels to something much lighter, a carbon tubular that was a very light wheel. And most critically, I also changed the crankset. And not only did I change 
the gearing of the crankset. I went from a 3953, which is a typical standard double, to a 3450, which is your typical compact. And I believe this may have even been before the subcompact really became terribly popular, but I remember wanting the lowest gear I could get just in case because it was, again, a hot day. It was a tough day, um, expecting that it was going to be a long, difficult race. Where I completely blew it was I changed to a crank set that was a different crank length. I went from a 172 uh, 0.5 crank to a 170 millimeter crank. Now it doesn't sound like much, but it's enough. Right? I adjusted the saddle height a little bit to compensate for the extra, you know, quarter centimeter or eighth of an inch, whatever it happens to be, however you want to look at it. And I set it in the garage the night before, and I left it. I didn't do one critical thing. I didn't ride that new setup. I didn't ride that new position. I didn't ride the new crank, the new cassette, or the new wheels. Now, that race has a lot of climbing in it. All right. If I remember, it was about three miles of rolling, and then we turned right and went straight uphill. And let me tell you, by about 15 miles in, my right knee was agonizingly painful. It was shot. It was killing me. It was killing me to the point where it hurt to pedal. Even downhill, it hurt to pedal. So, come the first feed zone, climbed off the bike. Climbed off the bike, got an ice pack, threw it on the knee. End of the story. Big mistake that I made in this case, and the easiest way for you to prevent this mistake is to always, always, always shake down your equipment after you make any kind of changes in your setup. That shakedown ride, and especially more than a ride, maybe a week even, if it's a significant change like a crank set, a cassette, and a wheel set, or if you're changing bars and shifters, or you're changing bars, you're changing saddle, you're changing pedals and cleats, always give some time to shake down that new setup and let your body adapt to that new position, to that new equipment. The more time your body has to adapt to it, the more comfortable it will be, the more efficient you will be, and the less potential you'll have for injury, which is exactly what happened in my case. I believe I was out of commission for about two weeks while I just sort of let the swelling, the inflammation in my knee, behind my kneecap go away. All right, so don't make the same mistake that I did. Don't just jump on a bike that has been modified and go for a race or go out for a Grand Fondo or go out for an epic ride. If you're going to do that, make sure you have that bike professionally fitted to you anytime you make those changes. If you're going to make the changes yourself, make sure you shake out that bike for about a week. If you're going to make a professional bike fit change, at least give it a ride, but I would still say give it about a week before you go and compete on that new setup, all right? That's the way you can prevent making that particular mistake. Now, the next one comes, <laughs> the next one was actually kind of comical, to be honest with you, and I, I almost wish I had it on video, and it's a very recent one, too, and uh, this one involved me uh, pretty much almost eating at a really high speed, 
um, for no, <laughs> for really nobody's fault other than my own. And that was, uh, the mistake here is not watching for drivetrain wear and um, ignoring uh, skipping gears. Okay, this silly little mistake, <laughs> as I said, is really nothing more than my own stupid fault for not paying attention to the wear on my own drivetrain. And this is actually, well, what is today? Today is, uh, I'm at the end of July right now. This is probably mid-July, mid to early July of 2016. And um, I was out on a ride with a couple of other people, and it was a, a relatively casual Thursday ride, but I needed to get some intensity in. So my plan was to get a couple of three-minute intervals, a couple of five-minute intervals, and get a couple of rolling sprints and track starts into that ride, work my training into a ride with a couple of other people. And I explained this to them prior to the ride so that they kind of knew what was going on and they were cool with this. Uh, previously, middle of June, typical somewhere around the middle of June, uh, middle of May, um, when I had ridden with some teammates and, um, a kind of competitive Wednesday night throwdown, which is just a, a little friendly competition, we always sprint at the end. Um, and basically what I did was I shifted, you know, I got into a good position about five riders back and um, shifted into my 5312, which is my the biggest gear I had at the time, and um, just commenced a real power hard sprint, a, you know, a, a long distance kind of sprint, something I'm not good at, but I need practice at. And at that point, I I had slipped a gear about maybe 200, 200 meters into the sprint. 100, 150 to go, I kind of slipped a gear and you know ended up basically sitting down and just getting pissed off that I slipped a gear. I didn't think anything of it. I didn't even bother to look at it. Had a couple of beers and, and went home and went about my day. And um, when it came time to actually ride this particular route on this Thursday. One of the intervals I was doing was a rolling sprint from a kind of a downhill launching pad, if you will. And basically, you get up to about uh, 20, 20, 25 miles, 27 miles an hour or so, and you get a chance to really ramp up a sprint from a higher speed, which is a skill that I've talked about in the past. And one of my previous podcasts about you know, adding snap to your sprint and adding power to your sprint. That's one of the intervals that I love to add into, mix into people's training. So I basically came downhill, ripping downhill, and um, shifted into that 12-tooth cog, and I stood up and ripped it. You know, a lot of torque through the bars, uh, really bent over, good arrow position, really feeling good, and got up to speed very quickly. I'm 34, 35 miles an hour. However, not thinking about the fact that that drivetrain was worn, I slipped that 12 tooth cog. And when I slipped on that 12, when that chain slipped on that 12 tooth cog, it actually dropped the chain off the front chain ring somehow. My foot came out of the pedal. Bike swung back underneath me. My right foot was the one that came out. The bike swung back left underneath me, jammed me in the back of the thigh, and I had nothing, no other choice but to try and stand up on the pavement at 35 miles an hour, put my foot down. 
Um, I managed to recover that particular um, screw up, that particular F up, if you will. And I didn't hit the ground, but it kind of made me take notice a little bit that there was something wrong with my drivetrain. Looking back at it, I ground the toe off of my cleat. I ground one of the pads off of my shoe. And I had a rather significant bruise up on my ass from where the (laughs) nose of the saddle jammed into my left uh, inner thigh and butt cheek as I sort of slipped off and stood up on the pavement. Um, Basically, the moral of the story here and, and how you can prevent this kind of thing, pay attention to the wear on your drivetrain and replace those parts if you need to. Looking back on it, I distinctly remember saying, that whatever, it's only the 12-tooth cog. I don't use it that often. It's not that big of a deal. Excuse me while I turn to the side and facepalm. Dummy. Don't do that. Don't do what I did and ignore the maintenance on your bike. Since then, I've replaced the chain, the cassette, and the chain rings. And as a side note, it's worth noting that as you wear in parts together... You can't really switch them out to something new. That chain was worn into that cassette and will remain worn into that cassette probably until the end of time or until I decide to pitch it. Hesitant to pitch a Dura Ace cassette and an X10 SL DLC chain because that's a big chunk of change. Um, But it's going to have to be done because they simply don't work well anymore. So prevent that cycling mistake of... um, not watching your drivetrain wear, breaking a chain, breaking a cog, which I've seen happen, or some other kind of issue by checking your drivetrain for wear, maintaining it properly, and replacing any parts that need to be replaced when they need to be replaced. Don't wait and see what happens. Otherwise, you might not be so lucky. You might not stand it up at 35 miles an hour you might lay it down at 35 miles an hour. And I can tell you from experience there as well, that's not fun. That's three months off the bike. Not fun. But that's a completely different story, and most of you know about that one as well. So moving on to the next big cycling mistake that I've made. And this one actually goes all the way back to 2011. 2011... The Trooper Brinkerhoff Memorial Race Series. Uh, that was an interesting race. That was one of my first races um, as being a licensed racer. And I learned a lot on that race. It was a day in mid to late March. And it was a day that was fairly warm for March around 44, 45 degrees. However, and as is notable for that particular race series, there's always a northwest wind in that race series. Always. And it's always substantial. It's at least 15 miles an hour. That particular day, the wind was about 22 to 25 miles an hour. So much so so that as you were on the... Um, basically you came out of turn two onto the uh, back stretch and um, 
when you weaved in between buildings or as you rode past buildings, there would be points where there was no wind and then there was a huge wind that would push the peloton to the left. And then no wind and then a huge wind that would push the peloton to the left. It was really, really difficult to manage. Um, But the management of the wind and the pack positioning wasn't necessarily the biggest problem I had that day. The biggest problem I had that day was warming up way too hard for the effort at hand. Now, this seems kind of counterintuitive, but I have talked about this in a previous post, and it was tips about a, tips for a proper warm-up. And I'll link to that in the show notes, which you can find, tailwind-coaching.com slash 74. You can find that link in the show notes. But the day of that race, I sat on the trainer and warmed up for probably 30 minutes. There was a delay in getting started. They were trying to deal with a few of it, few issues on the course, and clearing the course and things like that. And there were a few issues. I sat on the trainer for about 30 minutes, 30, 35 minutes, and I warmed up hard. I did a typical hard warm-up that I would have done for a prologue-style time trial in retrospect. All right? The race itself was a lot longer than I had anticipated. The pack was not moving at the speed that I had anticipated it wanting to go. And the race basically just took longer. They didn't climb as fast. They didn't hit the descents as fast. They didn't hit the flats nearly as quickly as I expected. So, I warmed up like it was going to be a shorter race. I expected it to be a half-hour race. It was um, about 20-ish miles. I think it was three laps of seven miles. So, I was expecting about 35 to 45 minutes. Now, this race had a reputation of being fast. It wasn't. It really wasn't. So I warmed up hard like I would for a crit. I think the race, the finisher actually finished that race in about an hour and two minutes. It was a long, difficult race. Mistake I made was that long, hard warm-up burned up my engine burned me out before the race really even started. Yeah, I felt great coming off the trainer. And I felt great coming out of the first corner. But as soon as we hit the climb, I didn't feel so good. I felt pretty bad throughout that entire race. And eventually, I made a mistake in the crosswinds because I was struggling a little bit because I wasn't feeling good. I ended up getting dropped. And I ended up riding in about four minutes behind you know, the winner of the, the particular race. Um, the biggest mistake I made was warming up too hard for that race. The shorter the race or the shorter the effort, the harder the warm-up needs to be because you don't have time during your effort or during your race to actually warm up during the beginning. The longer the race, the longer road races, something, anything that's more than 45 minutes to an hour, you don't need as big a warm-up because you will warm up and settle in during that race. Don't make the same mistake I did. Be smart about your warm-up. No, in previous editions, how long did this race take? I didn't look at the previous editions of this race. I just heard it was fast. And that was a big mistake. Another big mistake that I had made, which I have since never made again. That was also kind of before Strava became a thing. So it was a little bit tougher to find that information. But it was still out there and available, of course. 
Check the time of the race. Check the length of the winner from last year or the years prior. Get an idea of how long that race is. Get an idea of how difficult the parkour is. And build your warm-up around that necessary intensity. Then you won't make the same cycling mistakes that I made and warm up too hard and blow up in the first lap and a half. All right? Next big cycling mistake, also related to warming up, and that simply is not warming up at all before a really, really hard effort. Going back to May of 2014 for this one. One thing you need to understand about this location, the Northeast, we have a lot of weak day race series, weekday crit series particularly. And this one in particular is a local crit series that is, there's an A group and a B group. The B group goes off at 5.30 and they race 15 laps. And then the A group goes off at about 6.30, 6.45, basically a few minutes after the, the, a, the B group is done. And they race 30 laps. And it's a... Um, it's kind of a match point or a points race where every three laps you sprint for points and they, they lay out five, four, three, two, one for the top five uh, sprinters in that lap. And then at the end they tally it all up and whoever has the most points is the winner. It's, it's very similar to a points race on the track, really. And it just so happens that that A race is attended by many, many pros, local pros and especially track guys and um, the a race is a monster it's a beastly race but the b race is no joke anyway it's a great place to go get some race fitness get some experience and learn how to ride your bike properly back in may of 2014 it was near the very beginning of the series it might have been the second maybe the second actual race of the the series i don't recall exactly what number it was but it's about a 45 minute drive to get to this particular race on a Thursday night. And it's a 5.30 start. So it just so happened that that particular day, I got stuck in traffic. Uh, Instead of taking 45 minutes to get there, it took me an hour and 45 minutes to get there. So much so that I was kidding up while I was sitting in traffic, you know, about 10 miles away from the race venue. I was actually kidding up. I was actually putting putting a jersey on, putting my bib straps up and putting a jersey on, putting chamois butter on in the car while I'm sitting in traffic. And if you ever think you've gotten weird looks from people in the past while you're doing something in your auto, you know, your auto or your car or your truck or whatever, wait until you start putting bib straps up, putting a jersey on and putting chamois butter on. I guarantee you the looks I got were probably worse than anything you've ever seen. But I digress. I was late getting to that event. I barely had enough time to pin on a number, throw my Garmin on my bars. I didn't even have time to calibrate the power meter and st- and hit the line. I didn't even make it to the front of the line. I was stuck in the back of the group. So I didn't warm up at all. The only warm up I had was maybe the 100 yards pedaling from the car to the start line. I'll give you one guess what happened. Anybody? I made it five laps before I completely tanked. Burned up all of my glycogen, all of the anaerobic energy that I had, and I completely blew. 
So much so that I just crossed the finish line after the fifth lap and I said, I made the slashing motion across the throat and I'm done. And I went and had a seat and I watched my teammates race. So much for teamwork that particular night, huh? The mistake I made was not warming up at all. Contrary to the previous mistakes that I made where I'd warmed up too much and I'd blown up because I basically shut my engine you know, shot my engine before I'd even hit the race course. In this case, I didn't even begin to get the aerobic machinery going. I basically ran off sugar, off stored ATP, creatine phosphate, and then nothing. I was toast. I was done. I didn't have the ability to make any accelerations or stay with the pack. So, to prevent this cycling mistake, to prevent what I did, make sure that you get in some kind of warm-up before your effort. If you don't have time for a proper warm-up, make sure you at least get your legs spinning. Make sure you at least get the aerobic machinery going. You start getting a little bit of a sweat going. You start breathing a little bit heavy so your body is ready to work. Now, If you're not able to warm up on the race course because you get there late or there's another race on or there's something else going on, don't be afraid to pull out your stationary trainer. Stationary trainer is a great tool for a quick warm up. Even if it's five or ten minutes, it's still a great tool for a quick warm up. And the same goes for any set of rollers. Rollers are probably even easier because you don't have to worry about a different skewer, a different wheel, a different tire. You don't have to worry about getting everything locked in and then pulled out. You just basically drop them on the ground, jump on them, and go. All right. So make sure you get some kind of warm up in before you jump on your bike and just start hammering out. Don't make the same mistake I did and blow up because you didn't have a chance to warm up at all. All right. Now, the next one is, the next one's a little bit embarrassing because this shouldn't really happen, but it does. And it happens more often than you think. And I've seen it happen among multiple different groups with multiple different people. And uh, this mistake that I made once was running a really deep section wheel in some big crosswinds and the thrills and chills that go along with that. So, why are deep section wheels a bad idea in crosswinds? Well, if any of you watched the Giro d'Italia, the Tour de France, you'll know that crosswinds can play hell with groups of riders. And... A big, deep section rim just acts really as a sail for those winds to be caught, basically. Late 2013, I go back to a group ride that I was on. I really was feeling lazy that particular day. It was a Thursday night. I didn't feel like changing out my racing wheels because I was racing that following weekend. And my racing wheels are a, around a 60 millimeter deep rim. They're a deep rim. They're a tubular. I didn't feel like changing them out. I didn't feel like changing brake pads. I didn't feel like messing around with swapping, uh, you know, changing the brake caliper width or changing, you know, the height of the brake pads on the brake track or anything else. So I just said, ah, screw it. 
I'm just going to roll on my 58s or my my 60s or whatever the heck they happen to be. I don't even remember off the top of my head what they used to be. Don't even have them anymore for that matter. But I digress. I didn't feel like changing those wheels. I took them out on a training ride and I got, you know, with those with a couple of friends and I, I realized I got about 10 miles in and we hit some more open areas and crosswinds appeared. My own fault for not looking at the weather. It was my own fault for not thinking about it. There were several times where I almost ate it and I almost took out other people. I just wasn't prepared for that sail-like effect on those huge, deep section rims. The wind simply comes from the side, grabs that rim, and just pushes you over. To a point where you need to counter-steer to basically compensate for that wind shear. All right, it's a crazy, crazy feeling. If any of you have ever ridden a really deep section rim or a disc rim, if you're a time trialist or you're a triathlete that happens to be listening here, if you've ever lit, you know ridden a disc wheel, you know that even the slightest wind will make that wheel wobble like crazy, and it'll push your bike around like a sail. How do you prevent making this mistake? Well, number one, don't use a big deep section wheel on a group ride when the winds are high, especially if you're going to be dealing with crosswinds. If you're going to insist on doing that, practice using those wheels under less windy conditions. Actually seek out some days where there is a little bit of a breeze that you can get used to the feeling of wind blowing and catching those deep section wheels. All right. Worst comes to worst, if you're just not real comfortable, work on getting some upper body strength that makes it easier to control those bars. This is where mountain biking comes in very, very nicely, comes into very big effect in your terms of your upper body strength and your handling strength and being able to track a wheel in either rough terrain or heavy winds. So consider mountain biking or just working a little bit of upper body strength in the off-season so that you can maintain some of that upper body fitness and some of that ability to handle your bike a little bit better. And of course, a final option is look for a, a set of box section wheels or shallower depth wheels that have a lower aero profile but are still a nice lightweight option for those really windy days. I do remember a couple of racing days where Flat races, I should be using my big deep section 58 or 60 millimeter wheels. I opted to go with a 35, a 30 or 35 mil rim instead because of those crosswinds, because I wanted the most control that I could possibly have, especially in a larger group. All right, I only made that mistake once of running those deep section wheels and crosswinds, and I really don't think I ever want to make that mistake again because let me tell you, that's pretty friggin' scary when you feel out of control. All right, so don't make that same mistake I did. I give you a couple options to prevent that. Now, the next one, I kind of feel dumb about. I'll be honest with you. I feel pretty dumb about because this is about as about a mistake that's about as newbie or noobish, if you will, as you can make. Now, the heading for this one, at least under the show notes, is going to be called Not Carrying a Spare Tube or Patches for your tubes. That's not the case here. It's not a case that I forgot to carry a spare tube or carry pat. Well, I did forget to carry a patches, but it wasn't that I wasn't carrying a spare tube. 
Let me tell you the story behind this one. This was back in April of 2014. I had just built my new racing bike. It was a it's a BMC. Uh, I believe it was a team machine off the top of my head. I can't remember quite quite well. I've had so many bikes in the past. I, I just don't remember which one was which. Uh, but I believe it was a team machine. And I took it for a shakedown ride. You know, I had it built up. I had it basically set up to the same dimensions my other bike, a little bit more stretched out. But I took it for a shakedown ride to, to iron out any kinks in it. That early season shakedown ride, if any of you know me, you know that I love to ride on dirt, gravel, unpaved roads, things like that. All right, so I went out for an early season shakedown ride. What better way to put your equipment through the ringer than to put it on difficult, nasty, wicked terrain, right? Well, I went out carrying the same thing that I usually carry. One tube and a CO2 cartridge. I didn't have, actually I had two CO2 cartridges, I take that back. I had two CO2 cartridges. I didn't have any more than that. I flatted on that bike. Not once, not twice, not three times, but four separate times. Count them. Four. If you can see me, I'm wiggling four fingers here right next to my face. You know, just like if I were to stick my fingers in your face. Four separate times. I flatted. Thank the Lord, or whatever deity you believe in up there, that my wife carried... One, a spare tube. Two, a package of Park Tool emergency patches. And three, a hand pump. Guys, let me tell you something. Women are smarter than men. <laughs> okay. If my wife ever listens to this, she's going to just... I'm never going to hear the end of it, but it's true. Women are smarter than men. For many years, I said, Dah, whatever, just... Throw a tube in there, throw some CO2 in there, you're fine. You don't need anything else. Four separate punctures. And like I said, thankfully she carried not only the tube, but patch kit and a hand pump. Because there's no way I would have had enough CO2 to fix four flats. And enough to fix two, but not four. So, what I had to do was... First time I flatted, I put my tube in, spare tube, stuffed the old one in my pocket. Second time I flatted, all right, I can deal with this one. I patched that tube because she had a patch. Third time I flatted, shit, okay, well, I'll patch it again because she had a patch. Now I'm using, uh, now I'm using her hand pump to inflate the tire. Fourth time I flatted was a pinch flat snake bite. There was no way I'm patching that sucker, so I pulled her spare tube out, and at that point I decided, that's it, we're done with the gravel roads, we're hitting some pavement, we're heading home. Cut the ride a little bit short. Needless to say, got home on the fourth patched tube. How do you prevent this mistake? Well, as I said, in the podcast show notes, tailwind-coaching.com slash 74, the title here is Not Carrying a Spare Tube or Patches. The title should be Not Carrying Enough Spare Tubes or Patches. <laughs> so what you should be doing, you should be carrying at least some emergency patches. You should be carrying a hand pump 
If you're going to carry CO2, that's great, but somebody in the group should be carrying a hand pump, and I, I really recommend the Lazine uh, Road Drive hand pump. It's a really good tool. It really works very well, and it's a, it's a really solid piece of equipment, and there's a link to that in the podcast show notes as well, uh, but somebody should be carrying a hand pump. Somebody should also be carrying uh, a tire boot just in case something goes horribly, horribly wrong and, and you really need to, to work things out. And somebody should also be carrying, um, of course, spare tubes and things like that. So to make sure that you're actually carrying those, those particular things, I've got links in the podcast show notes. You can take a look at those as well. So don't be a dummy. Don't do what I did and have to uh, kind of hope that somebody can bail you out for all of your screw-ups and uh, make sure you're carrying the proper equipment. All right. Now that I'm done making a fool of myself, <laughs> the next two are really very personal things, things that I can't necessarily tell you that how to fix, okay? I can give you tips to help to fix these things, but these are things that are very dependent on you. And those are having eyes that are literally bigger than your legs and overestimating your fitness for any big epic ride that you do. Now, what do I mean about having eyes that are bigger than your legs? This one I can't even point to a very specific time that this has happened, but it happens to everybody at some point, many times in a season. You basically, particularly if you're riding with a group, I have to say that, you roll up to a climb, and you look up the road and you go, dude, no problem, I got it. And you strike out on your own. You want to show how good your fitness is, you want to take it to the guys you're riding with, and you want to just put them in the hurt locker. Suddenly, partway up the climb, you realize that you're being passed by other people. You're going backwards. You're suffering. You're hurting. Your legs are heavy. Basically, you just blew up on the climb. Essentially, what happens in this case, you misread what the climb is. You don't know what the parkour has in store for you. Or... You just think that your legs are feeling better than they really are. And you've underestimated how difficult that climb may be. Maybe it looks pretty shallow grade, or it looks pretty steady, but perhaps it changes pitch several times. And that change in pitch is enough that it can kind of throw you off and make life really difficult for you. This happens more often than you think. And it's a real problem. It's one of the biggest problems that most people struggle with is learning how to read the road, learning how to evaluate what's ahead of them, and how to attack what's ahead of them. My advice for you to prevent this cycling mistake is to learn how to read the road ahead of you. Practice it regularly. Go out on your own. When you turn up a climb, look up the road and say to yourself, what do I see? What do I... What information can I gather from looking at this climb, from looking at the road, from staring up the road, from glancing up, from seeing what does the road do? Does it pitch up? Does it wind out of sight? Does the tree line continue to rise? Is there a gap in the trees? Is there daylight after the crest of the climb? 
you can tell a lot just by looking up the road. You don't even have to know what the route looks like. As an example, I went on a ride very recently. It was a heavy climbing ride less than a month ago on a route that I had not been on in probably three or four years. Now, granted, I tend to do very well remembering roads and remembering what roads are like. But I had not been on this particular climb for quite a while. It's about a mile and a half in length, and it's a winding climb of varying pitch, and it has some really steep sections on it. However, I know that if I look up the road, I can determine, is that steep section going to go on for a long period of time? Is it going to settle down, and I'm going to have a chance to recover? I see the road wind up out of sight. How far is it going out of sight? Is it going to be climbing for a much longer period of time? Where is the crest? Can I see the crest? Can I see daylight past that crest? Can I see sunshine filtering through the trees where maybe there's no trees further above and there's an open canopy? Learn to read what's ahead of you. Learn to read what you're about to get into, and understand how to attack what you're about to get into. That way, you won't find yourself going backwards on those climbs. You won't find yourself suffering quite as badly. You'll learn to ride more conservatively early on. Maybe your buddies go up the road early on, and that's great. But I almost guarantee you're going to be able to catch them by the top because they will have misjudged what they're about to get into. And that happens more often than you think. So, prevent that mistake, learn to read the road ahead of you. And I've got a link to a previous article that I wrote on reading the road, tailwind-coaching.com slash 74, and just scroll down to that particular link. It's, come, it's under the heading of having eyes that are bigger than your legs. All right? Last thing, overestimating your fitness for any big ride or epic ride. And the one that I remember that sticks in my head really, really vividly for this the one time that I really, really badly overestimated how capable I was, was the 2013 Hell of Hunterdon. The 2013 Hell of Hunterdon was the first time I rode Hell of Hunterdon, and I think it was actually the last time I rode HOH, to be honest with you. I'm sure it had nothing to do with the limp overcooked pasta and the uh, Prego jarred sauce at the end from the ladies' auxiliary, but I digress. I happen to like food. What do you want? Shoot me. <laughs> Hell of Hunterdon was about 70 miles or so, and about 15 miles of that was dirt roads. And those dirt roads are not flat, especially if you know Hunterdon County, New Jersey. It's pretty lumpy. All right. I thought was in middle of March. I thought pff, 70 miles. I got the endurance to do this. It's no problem. There's a particular road called Pine Hill Road on that race course or on that route it wasn't a race at the time it was more of a more of a grand fondo type event but you know i digress we timed it of course we timed it we always time it what can i tell you you know it was posted on strava and everybody looked at it and went oh yeah good race and you did it whatever backing way up here pine hill road came about mile 56 or mile 60 somewhere in that neighborhood and I pretty much hit Pine Hill and thought, yeah, I got this. Pine Hill's a relatively short climb, maybe half a mile at most. Pretty steep average of 10 to 12%. It pitches up to about 16%. Pretty much once I hit Pine Hill, 
I was toast. I had overrun my muscular endurance. I've overestimated my ability to exceed my functional threshold power. I had exceeded the number of matches I had available. And I limped home. All right. In contrast to that particular time, you know, early 2013, when I didn't eat enough on that Sunday throwdown, I had eaten plenty. In fact, this was well before that Sunday throwdown disaster. I was eating just fine. I was had, you know, plenty of water, plenty of electrolytes, gel. I had a sandwich in my back pocket, which I chewed through at about mile 35, and I was feeling pretty decent. I simply didn't make it because I overran the limits of my muscular endurance and I burned up my entire matchbook before the end of the event. All right. I simply ran out of gas. And it wasn't a case of, oh my God, I can't turn the pedals over anymore. It wasn't a case of, geez, every pedal stroke is a leg press. It was a case of, geez, I can spin just fine, but man, I cannot put any any real power into the pedals. I got home on my endurance alone. My muscular endurance was shot. My matchbook, gone. How do you prevent a mistake like this? I'll be honest with you. That event and that experience was one of the driving forces behind the way I design my training systems. Okay? I design my training systems like this. And if you want me to do the work for you, go ahead. There's a link in uh, the podcast show notes and the episode show notes to my downloadable training plans. They, they work perfectly well. They work amazingly well for building what you need. If you want to do it yourself, here's how to do it yourself. Build your training around a solid base of muscular endurance and aerobic endurance. That base of muscular endurance and aerobic endurance has to be at least long enough and big enough to handle the duration of your target events. So in the case of Hell of Hunterdon, I should have been targeting muscular endurance for a period of 70 miles. 70 miles? Somewhere in the neighborhood of three and a half to four hours, four hours and 15 minutes, depending on the parkour and the amount of uh, unpaved roads. Don't forget, unpaved roads, dirt roads, gravel roads, things like the Dirty Kanza, you need extra muscular endurance because you're not just dealing with the rolling resistance of your tires on pavement. You're dealing with the rolling resistance of tires on gravel, sand, dirt, potholes, crappy roads. So you need extra muscular endurance. You should be building, for example, 70 miles, three and a half hours, you need to have at least three and a half hours worth of solid muscular endurance base. You should be able to go out and ride three and a half hours at 70 RPM at sweet spot. If you cannot, I guarantee you, you will not complete your objectives as you have them set. I guarantee it. Your endurance will come with it. But if you're doing a long event, a 200 miler, you're doing the dirty Kanza, you need to adapt and adjust for increased endurance. You have to. The big key here, and a lot of magazines, a lot of people will tell you functional threshold power is the key to getting better. Functional threshold is exactly what you need to be faster and stronger and last longer. All I can say is it's true. 
in the respect that if you're building it on top of a proper base of fitness, then yes. If you're not building it on top of that proper muscular endurance base of fitness, you're not building it on top of that core base of fitness in terms of core stability and strength to help keep you resilient, keep your back from hurting, keep the strength from leaving your body, you will not be able to put that functional threshold power to use, period. So your base, as I've talked about many, 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 many podcasts, which you can just search for on the website, muscular endurance, strength and stability of your core, endurance work, skills. Once you build those up and you've built them big enough, you will not make the cycling mistake of overestimating your fitness for any kind of big ride or event. You will be set to handle anything that the terrain, your buddies, or the weather can throw at you. All right, guys, 10, count them, 10 mistakes, 10 devastating mistakes, honestly, that I have made in my personal training and my personal racing and my personal riding. I'm giving it to you so you don't make those same 10 mistakes. So you can forego those mistakes. You can actually build a solid base of fitness and you can prevent yourself from getting stuck in a situation that could end up being potentially devastatingly harmful to you. So take those, even if you take one thing out of this, I've done my job today. All right. So if you liked what you've heard today, don't forget to head on over to iTunes. Give me a five-star rating over there. And don't forget to leave any comments, questions for me, either on the podcast show notes, tailwind-coaching.com slash 74, or shoot me an email, coachrobdc at gmail.com or at tailwind-coaching.com. Again, I want to thank all of you who have listened in the past or are listening now for that 150,000 download mark. That's huge for me. Proves to me that you guys love what you're hearing and want to get more of it. And I'm going to be giving you more of it for certain. Keep the shiny side up. Keep the rubber side down. Keep riding. Keep riding smart. Don't make the mistakes that I've made. And I'll be talking to you again really, really soon.